One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everybody and welcome to the History of England, episode 274, Not to Destroy but to Build. We are drinking everyone at the Last Chance Saloon for the Intelligent Speech Conference on the 29th of June at which I am warbling. Go along to intelligentspeechconference.com or the History of England website to find out more. Plus, come and join us on Flick Chat, a great app to chat about whatever you like with other history buffs. You can start your own threads and all of that, and we can shoot the breeze with any historical question you might have. What ifs of history are big right now in the chat. You might like, what if Mary is pregnant with a prince right now who grows up to become a king of England? What if, ladies and gentlemen, what if? Go along to the App Store or come along to the historyofengland.co.uk where you can find out how to join up. It's easy, in the words of the Beatles. Anyway, for Mary... Paul's return was another proud moment, everything she had wished for and worked for so hard. On the 22nd of November 1554, she took the unprecedented step of actually going down to Parliament in person to give her assent to a bill, repealing the attainder passed by her father's Parliament against Paul and his family. On the 24th of November, she met the papal legate at Whitehall alongside her husband and to her joy. Not only was she able to greet the Pope's representative back to England, but she had confirmation that she was pregnant. Because as Paul stepped forward and greeted her with the words, Hail Mary, which I think qualifies as a theological gag, Mary felt her child move within her. Once the formalities were completed in Parliament, surely all her people would return to the true church She would have a son, and the sign of God's favour would be the restoration of the world as her mother would have recognised it. Paul moved on to the London home of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Lambeth Palace, its former master Cranmer now gone, and he started preparing for the all-important meeting with Parliament, the meeting which would come on the 28th of November, when he'd face the expectant and probably slightly worried faces of both the House of Lords and the House of Commons. I doubt he had a lot of preparation to do, since I'd bet he'd been writing this speech for the last few years. Now, he had a job to do when he got there. He had to be firm. After all, the lot facing him had been very, very naughty. But Paul was not the fool that the doggerel had him. He knew that he also had to offer a thread, a story, that would help inspire and pull a nation with him back to Rome. And so he built a story in his speech of how England was God's special chosen country, that this island, first of all islands, received the light of Christ's religion. Which is an interesting argument, but truth is frequently the enemy of a good strong national story, so, you know, whatever. He painted a story of England fallen into error, 
but saved by the glorious figure of Mary who restored that natural and national religion when she, being a virgin, helpless, naked and unarmed, prevailed and had victory over tyrants. Having painted a story of the past, he then pointed to the future. And there's this very nice phrase he uses, which must have relieved his listeners immensely, but with which I cannot help but draw a much more modern parallel. I come not to destroy, but to build. I come to reconcile, not to condemn. I come not to compel, but to call again. The parallel I'm thinking of is Margaret Thatcher and her use of St Francis' prayer when she became Prime Minister. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Now, I have no intention whatsoever of breaking a golden rule of Easter England and discussing politics. So I have no intention of voicing any opinion about whether Margaret Thatcher was good, bad or otherwise. But I will venture the opinion that whatever you think of her, she did not bring harmony. I come not to compel, but to call again. That's a nice line. And it would turn out to be entirely incorrect, however much he believed it at the time. Two days later then came the sealing of the deal, as it were, when the high and mighty came to Westminster to be absolved of all their sins. Across the river from Lambeth again came Paul, and there the king, queen, lords and commons all knelt before him. We by apostolic authority given to us by the most holy Lord Pope Julius III, his vice-regent on earth, do absolve you and deliver you. Not a dry eye in the house, according to the Scot, John Elder. And that evening the Queen threw a bit of a knees up, and when the news reached Rome, the Pope ordered processions, and there was much rejoicing. Stephen Gardiner, a born-again papalist, preached at St Paul's Cross. Now also it is time when we awake out of our sleep, who have slept or rather dreamed these twenty years past. After the celebrations, though, the hard work needed to be completed. All the legislation concerning the royal supremacy would now need to be removed. And that was not as simple as it sounds. A committee was established on the 4th of December 1554 to discuss all of this, and they hit the thorny issue straight away. So Paul had been talked round to forgetting about the church lands, and he had finally agreed that everyone who had brought church lands should now have a papal dispensation so that they could keep them. But you know, that's not quite the get-out-of-jail-free card that you might think it is. Two things were wrong with it. Firstly, let's say a future pope took a different view to Julius III. Then where would everybody be in England? Sorry, he might say. The deal's off. Change my mind. Hand all those church lands back over. Secondly, the material stuff about the land was just one aspect of this issue. There was also a small matter of the state of sin that everyone was apparently now living in if they'd taken any church lands. Cardinal Paul's confidant, John Feckenham, the same chap who has spoken to Jane Grey in the Tower, he'd recently preached that holding lands of the church was a sin. And this sort of thing mattered. So at the moment, the situation was, in short, OK, you can have the land. But, oh, by the way, you're going to burn in hell for eternity, so, you know, enjoy it. It was Philip, 
rather than Mary that took the cudgels up on this one, because when presented with this as a problem, Mary and Paul found that they were both of one mind, which was that, OK, Parliament had been surprisingly difficult and a sacrifice needed to be made for the greater good, but thus far and no further, here I stand, I can do no other, sort of thing. Hate it or loathe it, whipping church lands was not just a disgrace, it was a sin, and if some future Pope came along and decided that it was time for the land back, then it would be so, and sick bisquitus disintegrate. The wages of sin and all that, suck it up, Keep looking over your shoulders, sinful noble dudes, because one day the vengeful Pope might well be there asking for his spondulics back. No point in ruling in hell when it's your job to serve in heaven. Behind them, the newly converted lover of papal supremacy, Stephen Gardner, could be seen vigorously nodding his head in agreement. It seems to be Philip who then came up with a suggestion to at least partly resolve this problem. I mean, the burning hell thing was something with which he couldn't help, but as far as the mortal coil bit of it, he suggested that the papal dispensation be made into statute law and passed through Parliament. So why is that a thing, I hear you ask? So what? Well, making it a law would mean that if a future Pope did come down like a wolf on the proverbial fold of England, the fold that was England could, if it so desired, just shrug its shoulder and say, can't be done, Gov, there's this law we've got and we're not going to change it. The response, even from a Mary very keen to be a traditional and dutiful wife, was a machine gun fire of pashoring. As far as Paul was concerned, he denied any valid title to church property in statute and he refused to tie the hands of a future Pope. So, nah. In fact, when detailed discussions took place, Gardner and Poole filled the time with a bit of good, honest lecturing of their noble friends about the sins they had committed, which I guess is their job when all said and done. It was Mary who cracked and decided that the low road would have to be taken on this one, talked around sometime in December. And so, in January 1555, Parliament passed the required law, and the English laity was fully absolved of their sins and now also able to keep their lands with some confidence. That being done, the majority of them were perfectly content to roll back the Reformation and those that weren't largely kept their heads down. And at the same time, they re-enacted the laws of heresy, which had started way back with the Lollards at the start of the 15th century, if you remember all of that, but was, had been set aside by Edward VI. It was now once more a capital offence in England to deny any aspect of Catholic orthodoxy and the brief period of relative safety of Edward's reign was completely over. Philip proceeded to make as much credit for this triumph as possible, making sure there were lots of pamphlets appearing, singing his name in celebration, and by throwing colourful parties and jousts and that sort of thing. Mary would put in an appearance at said jousts, but was not inclined to take an active part. From Philip's point of view, all of this self-promotion was about trying to advance his claim to political power, and his right-hand man, Regameth, felt they were making progress. But really, it was thin gruel compared to ruling an empire, and Philip grew increasingly impatient to shake the mud of London streets from his boots and get back to the places where his word was law. But Regometh persuaded him to stay. The main reason for that was that it was now public knowledge that Mary was pregnant Gomez also had the news communicated across Europe as well as England, writing in November to the Emperor Charles that 
There is no doubt the Queen is with child, for her stomach clearly sews it, and her dresses no longer fit her. And Mary herself wrote to her father-in-law too, and her relief and her happiness breathes in every word. As for that child which I carry in my belly, I declare it to be alive, and with great humility thank God for the great goodness he has shown to me, praying him so to guide the fruit of my womb that it may contribute to his glory and honour and give happiness to the King, my Lord and your Son, to your Majesty, who are my second father in the lifetimes of my own father, and therefore doubly my father, and lastly, that it may prove a blessing to the realm. Actually, it's an interesting gobbit. It breathes, it lives, it moves with a sense of gratitude and obligation to Charles as well, confirming that extraordinary level of influence exercised during her reign by a foreign power, whether through ambassador or through husband. It holds the sense of a wife happily fulfilling her role of the time, and in such roles Mary was determinedly traditional, but not, as we've seen, not blindly so, not when matters of state or conscience compelled her otherwise. And this child seems very much an act of duty as well as an act of love, a child born to do a job to ensure the future of the Catholic restoration and the health of the realm. Now, I guess a royal birth was and is a public as well as a private event, but the point is that whatever we'll accuse Mary of, it will not be for a lack of a sense of duty. Anyway, Philip was persuaded that he really must stay until the child, England and Catholicism's future was safely delivered. And indeed, the Royal Council made provision that Philip would become guardian of the realm if Mary died in childbirth. His powers would still be curtailed, but he would be regent. Specified in the limitation was no right to declare war, for this was one of the council and parliament's greatest fears now, that they would be dragged back into an expensive and ruinous war by Philip. Now, they had been promised that no way would this happen, inconceivable, Promise, cross my heart and hope to die, by both Mary and by Philip. But they were a suspicious lot for Parliament, and so they bound Philip with the legal equivalent of the sevenfold fence, stiff with hoops and armed with ribs of whale. Philip wasn't best pleased with this, but look, the recognition of his authority was something, and he recognised that he must stay just a little bit longer. Now then, the reenacting of De Heretico Comberendo by Parliament, the Heresy Laws, and the arrival of the Papal Legate gave new impetus to religious reform and the search for conformity. As we think about religion in this period, I will try to concentrate on three strands, not necessarily in this order. One of these, of course, is to give full reign to the horror of the most comprehensive and unprecedented religious persecution in English history. Q potentially, lots of whataboutery and spurious comparisons to the 45 years of Elizabeth's reign, but sorry, I am happy to defend the statement. However, there are two less well-trodden paths in the religious story that we must walk as well. A second strand is the equally unprecedented number of exiles who fled Mary's restoration, the Marian exiles as they will become known, and the impact that that has on England's future. And the third, also much less well-trodden, is the thing that Paul was really, really interested in, far more than some bloodthirsty act of retribution. 
He was really interested in the reinvigoration, the rejuvenation of the Catholic religion in England. This wasn't just about a return to the past. Paul meant what he said very sincerely when he told Parliament that he came to not to destroy, but to build. It turned out much more complicated than he had hoped, but he should not be accused of insincerity. And the evidence is there, actually, that he was making progress by the time he died. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. First things first, though, let me introduce you to John Fox. I must apologise now that we are being more detailed than we were in, let's say, the days of King John. I tend to forget what I have and have not told you. So if I am repeating myself, just put your hand up or shout at me. Won't make a blind bit of difference to me, of course, since, you know, it's a podcast. But you might feel a bit better. I find a simultaneous combination of for crying out loud and raising and dropping of an arms and an eye roll normally does the trick of making you feel a bit better. Anyway, John Fox, born in Boston, the original, in Lincolnshire around 1516, and we know not very much about his early life. But he became a Bachelor of Arts from Brasenose, Oxford in 1537, and for a while he was then at Magdalen College, of which he was not fond, I'm afraid to say, probably for a couple of reasons. Magdalen College required that within a year every fellow become a priest, and with this Fox was not enamoured. He wrote to a friend complaining that he could not stay unless I castrate myself and leap into the priestly caste, and announced to another that I do not intend to be circumcised this year. It is also clear that even at this early stage, Fox was an evangelical in a very conservative college. He'd already been the object of accusations that he was not attending services regularly. By 1545, then, he'd left Oxford and was a little bit on his uppers, not much of a career, though he'd developed an academic network before he left, staying with Hugh Latimer for a while, for example, and he started writing at this stage, starting off, oddly enough, with a comedy, which was obviously not to turn out to be his genre, but, you know, you are supposed to try everything once, which is reasonably rubbish advice. Still, he got married in 1547 to one Agnes Randall, which, according to a traditional story is a little wild of them. Because according to that story, there was Fox, penniless, alone, sitting miserably in St Paul's, feeling poor, when a stranger approached him and promised that he'd be employed within three days. And you know what? Next he knew he'd been approached by a very rich and powerful patron. The patron, of course, was the Duchess of Richmond, whose brother, the Earl of Surrey, had been executed. He's the poet with the fancy pants, son of the Duke of Norfolk, if you remember. Now, a bit of scholarship has revealed that this is probably, you know, just a story, in the sense that Fox was probably working at the time, including publishing a translation of Luther's sermons, and was possibly quite comfortably off. Which is a good thing, because he and Agnes were on their way to six kids, and they cost a bob or two, I can tell you. But what is certainly true 
is the connection with the Howard family recruited as tutor to all the little Howards. Such an illustrious appointment also brought Fox into a circle of the evangelical elite, if you like. So now he was rubbing shoulders with the likes of William Cecil, Nicholas Ridley, John Hooper, amongst others. During the Edwardian reforms, he then therefore became an influential voice, and he was particularly an advocate of the reform of ecclesiastical law, and he shared Cranmer's disappointment then when Northumberland and Parliament blocked reform. However, Fox did not share Cranmer's determination to pursue and to burn the likes of Joan Boucher for Anabaptism. Despite being the architect of a book that would become misused in Victorian hands as an attempt to stoke sectarian hatred, so Fox's Book of Martyrs, of course. Fox was actually relatively moderate when compared to the more puritanical wing of the evangelicals. He was actually rather unusual in hating the idea of capital punishment, so he wrote angrily to John Rogers when he supported Joan Boucher's execution. He also wrote against the idea that there should be capital punishment for adultery. Now, that might not seem unduly moderate to us. I mean, you know, capital punishment for adultery would now seem wildly loony to us. Or I hope it would anyway. But you might note that the more radical evangelicals would chase this idea for the next hundred years or so. And actually, they briefly achieved their aim in 1650. Do not, though, mistake Fox's attitude for toleration Fox was no modern liberal. He just felt that excommunication was the right punishment for breaking the laws of the church rather than judicial murder. In 1554 then, the main point to which all of this is leading, Fox was pretty devastated at the death of King Edward VI and he was immediately pessimistic about Mary's accession. And so, despite desperately writing to a friend to complain that he had no wish to leave Blighty, Blighty he decided he must leave and he and the pregnant Agnes took a ship to the Low Countries, and thence, after a bit of humanist tourism, that is to say, visiting Rotterdam, the birthplace of Erasmus, he arrived in July 1554 in the godly city of Strasbourg. John Fox was just one of a most unprecedented wave of exiles who left England rather than face the alternatives, and there were alternatives to flight, of course. There was acceptance or conversion, and often this was enthusiastically taken, of course, probably more than half the time. The renewed supremacy of the Pope after 20 years of anti-papal propaganda was frequently a bit of a stumbling block, but for many the restoration of the Catholic rite was nothing more than great news. For some, a thousand at least that we know of and possibly more, flight was the only acceptable approach, and we'll come to that in a moment. But for most, the thought of exile was either practically impossible or just unbearable. So as Bishop Bonner of London immediately started turning the screw in February 1555 and demanding declarations of loyalty and conformity from each and every parishioner, he held a conversation with one Ralph Allerton, whom he suspected of being a heretic. Ralph's comment to him is fascinating. This is what he said. There are in England... Three religions. That which you hold, the second, clean contrary to the same. And the third is a neuter, being indifferent, that is to say, observing all things that are commanded outwardly, as though he were of your part, his heart being set wholly against the same. 
There's an argument that goes along these lines, that after all the chopping and changing by the end of Elizabeth's reign, and more so by the end of the 17th century and the Puritan Revolution, there's a strong element of a sort of weary Pelagianism, if that's the right word, a vague belief in God and that somehow being a good person will probably get you to heaven and could you pass the salt, please? The sort of attitude that would allow a podcaster to get Peter and Paul mixed up and respond to the resulting flack with a weary shrug of the shoulders. Pelagius apparently rejected the idea of original sin and that people were perfectly able to fulfil the law without divine aid. It's always seemed a bit of a shame to me that the teaching of this British 4th century monk were declared heretical. But I had to say, I'm far from expert. But they all sound rather relaxed and reasonable. And I, but I may be misunderstanding the lad anyway. But anyway, he sounds jolly sensible from what I know. But what Ralph is talking about here is partly reflecting some of that weariness and doubt in authority that must have been the result of all this toing and froing that had happened between Henry VIII to Edward VI to Mary. But what Ralph is also talking about is something called Nicodemism. And for evangelicals, Nicodemism would become a great debate. So, I don't know how well you know your Bible, but Nicodemus, I am told, was one of the Pharisees who came to visit Jesus in secret. And the idea was that you could just observe the outward forms as little as was required to keep your flesh from being burned publicly from your bones and remain true inwardly and in the privacy of your own home to your real faith. Nicodemism was a word invented by Jean Calvin, and as you can probably guess, he wasn't a fan. Then there are many things of which Calvin was not a fan. What I mean is, he condemned you with a fervour of which only John Calvin was possible. But for many, there was no better choice than Nicodemism. And the reverse would also be true for Catholics in Elizabeth's reign. If you'll allow me a quick digression for a moment, there is a church near me which has an oddly lopsided nave. It sticks a long way out to the right. It's not centred on the chancel, if you like. The word on the streets is that this allowed the local Catholic gentry family to attend church and therefore avoid the recusancy fine for not going to church, but not have to look at the service actually going on because they couldn't see it if they were stuck out in the lopsided nave. Possibly an apocryphal tale, but it's the kind of thing we're talking about here. A very famous Nicodemite, as it happens while I'm on a digression, was our very own William Cecil. Given Cecil's later fervour for the cause of Protestantism, I am mildly surprised at the level of Cecil's relationship with Mary's regime. I should not have been, of course, Cecil was an operator. That is not to say that Cecil was allowed to take part in Mary's government. He'd been far too closely associated with Edward and Jane Grey for that. But he did not need to leave London or England. What he did, in fact, is that he hobnobbed. Before the days when hobnobs had been invented, he hobnobbed with the great and he hobnobbed with the mighty. Over the course of the reign, Cecil dined many times even with Cardinal Poole himself, and the two even became friends, sharing a sort of scholarly sense of curiosity and inquiry. In May 1555, Cecil travelled to a peace conference between France and the Empire in the company of Stephen Gardiner. What Cecil was doing was keeping his contacts alive, keeping his finger in the pie of politics. He wasn't ready yet to eat the pie. But if Mary's reign began to look more permanent and she had a child, well, you know, who knows? He might move from hobnobs to pie. Meanwhile, he spent time messing about at home at Burley as well. OK, end of my double diversion. 
So, if you accepted the invective that came from the reformed cities of the continent about Nicodemites, then you were left with just two more alternatives, to burn or to flee. And in 1554, along with Fox, the strangers were the first to go. The strangers were those foreign Protestant communities living in England. After them fled a collection of preachers, academics, merchants and a smattering of gentry. Often, the new regime were thoroughly pleased to see them go. It saved them a lot of trouble. Gardner made something of a virtue of it all and had a bit of fun with it, if fun be the opposite word. He boasted that he'd identify a bunch of likely targets and then he'd invite them around to his house. The recipients of the invitation would, of course, immediately panic, start leaping to conclusions and a blue funk they'd run for the hills in a panic, leaving Gardner chuckling and rubbing his hands with glee. Not for nothing was he called Wiley Winchester. What a card, eh? <laughs> Among the Marian exiles were some very high-profile people. You might remember Catherine Willoughby, wife of Charles Brandon and Duchess of Suffolk. The radical who'd kept a dog at court that she called Gardner. Now the joke, of course, was on the other cheek, but nothing daunted, Catherine left with a grand entourage and a blaze of glory to tour the reformed cities of Europe, ending up at the court of the King of Poland before she was able to return. Catherine Willoughby was not the sort of person to sneak out at the dead of night. She was joined by a bunch of the bishops who had been deprived of their sees and replaced by good Catholics there. So, the likes of John Ponnet, the Bishop of Winchester, who arrived at Strasbourg, John Knox had been a preacher in England at the time, and an argumentative one at that, and he fled to Frankfurt. Or it might be university men, so like Edwin Sands, who you might remember as the Cambridge Vice-Chancellor who stood by Northumberland and stayed in Cambridge to take his Marian medicine after Lady Jane Grey. He was imprisoned in the Marshalsea prison, but managed to pull a few strings and away he fled to Antwerp, then Strasbourg, and eventually Zurich. Then there was John Cheek, Edward VI's tutor and the man who had written the proclamation for Jane Grey. He was allowed to leave and travelled to Italy and then landed up in Strasbourg. Both Sands and Cheek were joined or accompanied by their wives and families. Or the exiles might be non-public figures who had the wherewithal to flee. One example was Rose Hickman. She and her husband Anthony started off by simply worshipping behind closed doors along with a small conventicle of close, like-minded friends. Anthony Hickman even secretly funded other Protestants who decided they might make for run for it, but unfortunately he was discovered doing this and slung into jail alongside, as it happens, those jurors who had refused to convict one of Wyatt's fellow rebels, Throckmorton, and therefore they'd been jailed by Mary for the outrage of not visiting the kind of justice that was required. The Hickmans were successful merchants, and so they reached out to a powerful patron, in this case, Councillor William Paulette. For the outlay of a considerable number of, shall we say, entirely unconnected and yet generous gifts to the tune of 200 quid by Rose's reckoning, Paulette managed to spring Antony and the jurors from jail, and then Antony, abjured the realm, fled to Antwerp. Antwerp was a Catholic city, actually, but the exiles found that the form of worship in the cathedral allowed them to escape notice. Now, Rose was pregnant at the time, and so she stayed, minding the business, the house and the children, but she was in something of an agony of indecision. So when the baby was born, could she get her baptised without, you know, committing a dreadful sin? She even wrote to the imprisoned Cranmer and Ridley, and they told her that she could 
do so without sullying her immortal soul, and so she did. But very typically, she found a small way of rebelling, of keeping a part of herself back from compliance and submission to the new forms of worship. So the rite of baptism included the placing of salt in the baby's mouth, and unnoticed, Rose managed to hide the salt in her hanky rather than hiding it in the baby. Eventually, Rose could bear it all no longer, and so she also left for Antwerp, leaving behind their two houses. For Rose, though, that price was worth paying. According to her, it was nothing in comparison to liberty of conscience for the profession of Christ. It's a good sign of just how important these questions were to so many people, high and low. You will notice something of a theme about the destination of these folks. It was very often the cities of the Reformed Church of Jean Calvin that took them in. So it was cities like Frankfurt, Strasbourg, Emden, Zurich, Geneva. When they got there, the exiles did not always live quietly, although many did. But instead, some found themselves confronted by new forms of Protestantism, of which they may have only been dimly aware, or like Knox, of which they were very well aware, but had been unable to convince the English, like Cranmer, to follow. While for some people then the opportunity was simply to follow the Book of Common Prayer, others were excited to realise that they could go further towards a more fully reformed church and what that church might look like. So under Elizabeth, this principle that the church in England had only gone so far and should have gone further into reform is a movement that will begin to be called Puritanism, or the godly. Edwin Sands, for example, wrote breathlessly, if you can write breathlessly, We have lost saving truth at home and found it abroad. Our countrymen are become our enemies and strangers are made our friends. There is in that the flavour of the internationalism of English Protestantism of which we have spoken before. And even back in England, conventicles sometimes had the very same thought. So one preacher spoke of a different type of three types of religion thing. So one my Lord Chancellor's religion, so that's Gardiner's religion. A second, Cranmer, Latimer and Ridley's religion. And then there was also God's religion. The point was to them that although Cranmer's religion was better than the old faith, it still wasn't great, it still hadn't gone far enough all the way. A network sprang up, therefore, of academics and preachers debating the issues of the reformed religion, sometimes in a very argumentative way indeed. It was by no means always the case that they just gratefully fitted into the ways of the local community. Oh, good Lord, no. They were often part of the furious debates. And many of them wrote about it or were inspired to write. So it was from exile that John Ponnet wrote his A Short Treatise of Politic Power in 1556. Most Protestant thinkers found it difficult to live with the standard idea that they must be obedient to civil authority when that authority was opposed to what they considered true religion. Now, Ponnet gave these people an alternative. He argued that rulers were required by God to do good, not evil. If a ruler, therefore, inflicted grievous injuries on his people, such as, I don't know, let me think, just for instance, possibly burning people who adhered to the true faith, then that ruler failed in their office and were unlawful. They thus should be treated as a normal criminal and punished accordingly, even if that meant execution. There's a thought, to kill a king. Ponnet would be read and drawn on later by John Locke. Now I have a feeling of déjà vu here, so maybe I have warbled on about Ponnet before, but look, he died in 1556, so you're safe now. 
Back to John Fox then, who was now very much part of this network of scholars producing work that not only circulated on the continent, but made their way home as well. By 1557, Fox was in Basel, working for a press, translating and producing the works of others, but also writing and publishing his own work. The Marian exile community formed therefore a community which was in one sense a group of people, influential or otherwise, simply fleeing persecution and finding a way to live, but in another was a source of propaganda to sustain and maintain resistance back home. But, probably most critically, it was a place where the view of reformed religion changed in the light of Calvin's teachings. It would be foolish to suppose that there would have been no Puritan movement in England in Elizabeth's reign without the exiles. There were plenty that felt Cranmer had been interrupted in the middle of his reforms anyway. Nonetheless, when many of the Marian exiles were able to return to England, they brought with them a greater depth of knowledge and experience of Calvin's reformed religion to support those with the godly mindset. Part of that was not just theology, but the experience of cities like Geneva which had developed the capability for discipline in the consistory, a mechanism to enforce proper godly behaviour, all of which we will return to at some point. In England, though, as soon as the heresy laws had been re-established, the new leaders of the church under Paul's direction would now seek to reinvigorate Catholic practice and church. But they also recognised that a few, just a few, would need to feel the ultimate sanction of law. It would not be many. Once shown the truth, the people of England would return to the true church without further encouragement. It would all be over by Christmas. Just a short, sharp shock should do the trick. And so it was that on the 4th of February 1555, fate came knocking on the door of a man called John Rogers. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 